0: Day 5 of Totus Tuus' Novena to Mary Immaculate Star of the Sea with quotes from Pope Benedict XVI's encyclical letter Spes Selvi on Christian hope. Let us ask once again what may we hope and what may we not hope? First of all we must acknowledge that incremental progress is possible only in the material sphere. Here, amid our growing knowledge of the structure of matter, and in the light of ever more advanced inventions, we clearly see continuous progress towards an ever greater mastery of nature. Yet, in the field of ethical awareness and moral decision-making, there is no similar possibility of accumulation, for the simple reason that man's freedom is always new, and he must always make his decisions anew. These decisions can never simply be made for us in advance by others. If that were the case, we would no longer be free. Freedom presupposes that in fundamental decisions, every person and every generation is a new beginning. Naturally, new generations can build on the knowledge and experience of those who went before, and they can draw upon the moral treasury of the whole of humanity. But they can also reject it, because it can never be self-evident in the same way as material inventions. The moral treasury of humanity is not readily at hand like tools that we use. It is present as an appeal to freedom and a possibility for it. This, however, means that a. The right state of human affairs, the moral well-being of the world, can never be guaranteed simply through structures alone, however good they are. Such structures are not only important, but necessary. Yet they cannot and must not marginalize human freedom. Even the best structures function only when the community is animated by convictions capable of motivating people to assent freely to the social order. Freedom requires conviction. Conviction does not exist on its own, but must always be gained anew by the community. B. Since man always remains free, and since his freedom is always fragile, the kingdom of good will never be definitively established in this world. Anyone who promises the better world that is guaranteed to last forever is making a false promise. He is overlooking human freedom. Freedom must constantly be won over for the cause of good. Free ascent to the good never exists simply by itself. If there were structures which could irrevocably guarantee a determined good state of the world, man's freedom would be denied, and hence they would not be good structures at all. What this means is that every generation has the task of engaging anew in the arduous search for the right way to order human affairs. This task is never simply completed. Yet every generation must also make its own contribution to establishing convincing structures of freedom and of good, which can help the following generation as a guideline for the proper use of human freedom. Hence, always within human limits, They provide a certain guarantee also for the future. In other words, good structures help, but of themselves they are not enough. Man can never be redeemed simply from outside. Francis Bacon and those who followed in the intellectual current of modernity that he inspired were wrong to believe that man would be redeemed through science. Such an expectation asks too much of science. This kind of hope is deceptive. Science can contribute greatly to making the world and mankind more human. Yet it can also destroy mankind and the world, unless it is steered by forces that lie outside it. On the other hand, we must also acknowledge that modern Christianity, faced with the successes of science in progressively structuring the world, has to a large extent restricted its attention to the individual and his salvation. In so doing, it has limited the horizon of its hope and has failed to recognize sufficiently the greatness of its task, even if it has continued to achieve great things in the formation of man and in care for the weak and the suffering. It is not science that redeems man. Man is redeemed by love. This applies even in terms of this present world, When someone has the experience of a great love in his life, this is a moment of redemption, which gives a new meaning to his life. But soon he will also realize that the love bestowed upon him cannot by itself resolve the question of his life. It is a love that remains fragile. It can be destroyed by death. The human being needs unconditional love. He needs the certainty which makes him say, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If this absolute love exists, with its absolute certainty, then, only then, is man redeemed. Whatever should happen to him in his particular circumstances. This is what it means to say, Jesus Christ has redeemed us. Through him, we have become certain of God, a God who is not a remote first cause of the world, because his only begotten Son has become man, and of him everyone can say, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In this sense, it is true that anyone who does not know God, even though he may entertain all kinds of hopes, is ultimately without hope, without the great hope that sustains the whole of life. Man's great true hope which holds firm in spite of all disappointments, can only be God. God, who has loved us, and who continues to love us to the end, until all is accomplished. Whoever is moved by love begins to perceive what life really is. He begins to perceive the meaning of the word of hope that we encountered in the baptismal rite. From faith I await eternal life, the true life which, whole and unthreatened, in all its fullness, is simply life. Jesus, who said that he had come so that we might have life, and have it in its fullness, in abundance, has also explained to us what life means. This is eternal life, that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Life in its true sense is not something we have exclusively in or from ourselves. It is a relationship. And life in its totality is a relationship with him who is the source of life. If we are in relation with him who does not die, who is life itself, and love itself. Then we are in life. Then we live. Yet now the question arises, are we not in this way falling back once again into an individualistic understanding of salvation, into hope for myself alone, which is not true hope since it forgets and overlooks others? Indeed we are not, Our relationship with God is established through communion with Jesus. We cannot achieve it alone, or from our own resources alone. The relationship with Jesus, however, is a relationship with the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. Being in communion with Jesus Christ draws us into his being for all. It makes it our own way of being. He commits us to live for others, and only through communion with him does it become possible truly to be there for others, for the whole. In this regard, I would like to quote the great Greek doctor of the Church, Maximus the Confessor, who begins by exhorting us to prefer nothing to the knowledge and love of God, but then quickly moves on to practicalities. The one who loves God cannot hold on to money, but rather gives it out in God's fashion, in the same manner in accordance with the measure of justice. Love of God leads to participation in the justice and generosity of God towards others. Loving God requires an interior freedom from all possessions and all material goods. The love of God is revealed in responsibility for others. This same connection between love of God and responsibility for others can be seen in a striking way in the life of St. Augustine. After his conversion to the Christian faith, he decided, together with some like-minded friends, to lead a life totally dedicated to the Word of God and to things eternal. His intention was to practice a Christian version of the ideal of the contemplative life, expressed in the great tradition of Greek philosophy, choosing in this way the better part. Things turned out differently, however. While attending the Sunday liturgy at the port city of Hippo, he was called out from the assembly by the bishop, and constrained to receive ordination for the exercise of the priestly ministry in that city. Looking back on that moment, he writes in his confessions, Terrified by my sins and the weight of my misery, I had resolved in my heart and meditated flight into the wilderness. But you forbade me, and gave me strength, by saying, Christ died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. Christ died for all. To live for him means allowing oneself to be drawn into his being for others. Let us summarize what has emerged so far in the course of our reflections. Day by day, man experiences many greater or lesser hopes, different in kind according to the different periods of his life. Sometimes, one of these hopes may appear to be totally satisfying, without any need for other hopes. Young people can have the hope of a great and fully satisfying love, the hope of a certain position in their profession or of some success that will prove decisive for the rest of their lives. When these hopes are fulfilled, however, it becomes clear that they were not, in reality, the whole. It becomes evident that man has need of a hope that goes further. It becomes clear that only something infinite will suffice for him, something that will always be more than he can ever attain. In this regard, our contemporary age has developed the hope of creating a perfect world that, thanks to scientific knowledge and to scientifically based politics, seemed to be achievable. Thus the biblical hope in the kingdom of God has been displaced by hope in the kingdom of man, in the hope of a better world, which would be the real kingdom of God. This seemed at last to be the great and realistic hope that man needs. It was capable of galvanizing, for a time, all man's energies. The great objective seemed worthy of full commitment. In the course of time, however, it has become clear that this hope is constantly receding. Above all, it has become apparent that this may be a hope for a future generation, but not for me. And however much for all may be part of the great hope, since I cannot be happy without others or in opposition to them, it remains true that a hope that does not concern me personally is not a real hope. It has also become clear that this hope is opposed to freedom, since human affairs depend in each generation on the free decisions of those concerned. If this freedom were to be taken away as a result of certain conditions or structures, then ultimately this world would not be good since a world without freedom can by no means be a good world. Hence, while we must always be committed to the improvement of the world, tomorrow's better world cannot be the proper and sufficient content of our hope. And in this regard the question always arises, when is the world better? What makes it good? By what standard are we to judge its goodness? What are the paths that lead to this goodness? Let us say once again, we need the greater and lesser hopes that keep us going day by day, but these are not enough without the great hope, which must surpass everything else. This great hope can only be God, who encompasses the whole of reality, and who can bestow upon us what we, by ourselves, cannot attain. The fact that it comes to us as a gift is actually part of hope. God is the foundation of hope. Not any God, but the God who has a human face and who has loved us to the end, each one of us, and humanity in its entirety. His kingdom is not an imaginary hereafter, situated in a future that will never arrive. His kingdom is present wherever He is loved, and wherever His love reaches us. His love alone gives us the possibility of soberly persevering day by day, without ceasing to be spurred on by hope, in a world which by its very nature is imperfect. His love Is at the same time our guarantee of the existence of what we only vaguely sense, and which nevertheless, in our deepest self, we await. A life that is truly life. Let us pray. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Our Mother, teach us to believe to hope, to love with you. Show us the way to Jesus' kingdom. Star of the sea, shine upon us and guide us on our way. Prayer of Pope Benedict XVI On the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, 2006 O Mary, Immaculate Virgin. Again this year, with filial love, we meet at the foot of your image to renew to you the homage of the Christian community and of the city of Rome. Let us pause in prayer here, following the tradition inaugurated by previous popes, on the solemn day in which the liturgy celebrates your Immaculate Conception, a mystery that is a source of joy and hope for all the redeemed. We greet you and call upon you with the angel's words, full of grace, the most beautiful name that God himself has called you from eternity. Full of grace are you, Mary, full of divine love from the very first moment of your existence, providentially predestined to be mother of the Redeemer and intimately connected to him in the mystery of salvation. In your Immaculate Conception shines forth the vocation of Christ's disciples, called to become, with His grace, saints and Immaculate through love. In you shines the dignity of every human being, who is always precious in the Creator's eyes. Those who look to you, O Holy Mother, never lose their serenity, no matter what the hardships of life. Although the experience of sin is a sad one, since it disfigures the dignity of God's children, anyone who turns to you discovers the beauty of truth and love and finds the path that leads to the Father's house. Full of grace are you, Mary, who, welcoming with your yes to the Creator's plan, open to us the path of salvation. Teach us also at your school to say our yes to the Lord's will. Let it be a yes that joins with your own yes, without reservations or shadows, a yes that the Heavenly Father willed to have need of in order to beget the new man, Christ, the one Savior of the world and of history. Give us the courage to say no to the deceptions of power, money, pleasure, to dishonest earnings, corruption and hypocrisy, to selfishness and violence. No to the evil one, the deceitful prince of this world. To say yes to Christ, who destroys the power of evil with the omnipotence of love. We know that only hearts converted to love which is God, can build a better future for all. Full of grace are you, Mary. For all generations your name is a pledge of sure hope. Yes, because as the great poet Dante wrote, for us mortals you are a source of living hope. Let us come once again as trusting pilgrims, To draw faith and comfort, joy and love, safety and peace, from this source, the wellspring of your Immaculate Heart. Virgin full of grace, show yourself to be a tender and caring mother to those who live in this city of yours, so that the true gospel spirit may enliven and guide their conduct. Show yourself as mother and watchful keeper of Italy and Europe, so that people may draw from their ancient Christian roots fresh vigor to build their present and their future. Show yourself as a provident and merciful mother to the whole world, so that, by respecting human dignity and rejecting every form of violence and exploitation, sound foundations may be laid for the civilization of love. Show yourself as mother, especially to those most in need, the defenseless, the marginalized and outcasts, to the victims of a society that all too often sacrifices the human person for other ends and interests. Show yourself, O Mary, as Mother of all, and give us, Christ, the hope of the world. Monstrate esse matrim, O Virgin Immaculate, full of grace. Amen.